This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. Well, it's not yet been officially confirmed by the federal government. Certainly word that uh, Omar Khadr is to be uh, compensated some $10 million, I guess, to make this lawsuit go away. $20 million lawsuit uh, he has pending against the federal government, which maintains that his rights were violated. And again, as we noted earlier, he has a Supreme Court ruling on his side that maintains exactly that. Maybe Canadians are prepared to move on. With regard to Omar Cotter, I mean, not a lot of Canadians uh, lie awake at night thinking about the fact that he's out of jail, he's getting an education, he's moving on with his life. But I think the idea of giving him $10 million is a little tough to swallow. Mind you, I guess it depends on the context you look at it. I don't think the Prime Minister woke up one day and thought it would be a nice gesture to give this young man a gift of $10 million. Perhaps it's more a case of cutting our losses ahead of the inevitable court ruling in his favor. So how do we get to this point? I wanted to explore this a little bit more. Uh, Michelle Shepard has uh, written a lot about uh, this story. Uh, She's the uh, Toronto Star National Security reporter, uh, author of the book Decade of Fear, reporting from terrorism's gray zone, and also a book about Omar, a subsequent documentary called Guantanamo's Child. Michelle, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much. It's so weird to think that Omar Khan was 15 at the time, and here we are now 15 years later. Uh, still talking about this. Um, here's a curveball question, though. If Omar Khadr had been born in 2002 and he was in the battlefield in Afghanistan today, taken into American custody, how might things unfold now as opposed to then? Oh, that's, a, that's a good question to start off with. Um, <laughs> first, I will agree with you that when I started covering this story in 2002, I certainly never dreamed that in 2017 we'd still be talking about it. Um, but I think to put it into, to answer your question, a lot would be different. Um, the war, so-called war on terror, has changed so much over the years, and a lot of the uh, programs and policies that were put in place after 9-11 uh, are no longer there, even with the um, president that we do have in um, the U.S. now and the fact that Guantanamo is still open. Mm-hmm. I think the use of the military commissions, that, that was the new law that was brought in under which uh, Omar Khadr was charged. Uh, I, we haven't had a case of that with uh, ISIS or any other groups today. So I, I think it would be I think it would be really quite different. A lot of hard lessons were learned after 9-11 for Canada and, and countries around the world. I imagine that he would probably be brought back here and dealt with in the just justice system here. Yeah, well, it's an interesting question. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, at the no. time, right, and, and, you know, certainly, I mean, much of this is about what Canada did or didn't do, or what Canada could have done or should have done. Um, but certainly from what we know, uh, for example, that the time he was transferred from Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan to Guantanamo Bay, did Canada attempt to intervene and request that he not be sent to, to Gitmo? They did, actually. Um, there was, so at that time, it was the Liberal government, and there were 
uh, some notes that diplomatic notes that went back and forth, meeting between meetings between ministers, where they had asked that he not be sent, and they had been attempting to visit him. At that time, the U.S. wasn't allowing any consular visits to any of the citizens of other countries that were in their custody, which you know violates one of the conventions. But there were many <laughs> international conventions at that time that were violated. Uh, I think, though, what the evidence shows from that time was it was a pretty half-hearted attempt. And there were, I remember, this is going back so many years, it's, it's challenging my memory here, but I do remember getting some documents through access to information that showed that from a political standpoint, there was this one damning document that said in in um, the lines that would go out to the media that said, let's, quote, claw back on the messaging that this is a kid, that this is someone who is 16. So within Ottawa at that time, with the Liberal government, there was this sort of hesitation, yes, we should advocate for him, but uh, he's a cotter, and this is 2002, just a year after 9-11, so let's not, you know, scream from the rooftops. But I mean, have the Americans been willing to to listen or, you know, if they were just as happy to make Omar Khadr our problem? I, I wonder what we could have done at the time. I mean, could we have, have charged him? Would we have charged him? What would have happened? Well, I, I doubt we would have charged him. There have been um, lawyers and uh, over the years, I think even a whole law school or law class went after that issue. You know, what laws could be uh, applied here there are laws such as treason, that sort of stuff. Um, possibly, but probably not, because, you know, before 9-11, uh, one, it was never a, what's considered a war crime to kill a soldier in battle. I mean, unfortunately, that's what happens in war. And so, you know, for, since World War II, if a soldier was killed, it, it wasn't considered a crime. The only people that, uh, the only times it was considered a war crime if it was a protected person of war, so mm-hmm. civilians, medics, that sort of thing. Uh, so there wouldn't have been the, the, this, this U.S. law that they drafted, the military commissions, was new law, and it's only applied in Guantanamo. So we wouldn't have had that. And I think also, you know, there are different... The reason that there are different laws for laws of war is because in war, people do get killed. And as I said, it's it's sanctioned. It's okay to be killed. It's complicated, you know, whereas if he was a 15-year-old who went into, say, the Eaton Center and threw a grenade, well, we have laws that state, you know, you... Even as a 15-year-old, you can be charged. You should be no no better. And maybe we'll apply to have you charged as an adult. It's not the same thing in war, and that's why there's different laws. Right. But it, it, it does allow a country like the United States, for example, to hold prisoners of war. Uh, that someone's captured on the battlefield, it makes sense then that you, you hold that person because they, they still pose a threat. Could they have simply held Omar? Maybe even held him uh- indefinitely. Uh, they could have. I mean, that that's the whole sort of the larger legal question of, of Guantanamo, that they, they, they never considered those who were captured there as prisoners of war, right. which is what we've done for, you know, years. And that, that was all rewritten. But, but sure, I mean, that in theory is what could have been done. Uh, he could have been questioned for intelligence. You know, he, his family had been uh, with, you know, high-level al-Qaeda members. He could have told them something. Uh, the only problem is the idea of, of being a prisoner of war is you are held until the end of the war, typically. <laughs> yeah. 
when's the end of the war for the war on terror, which is what it was, you know? Um, So so it's really, these are sort of the the huge, larger, legal, complicated issues that, you know, I've been trying for 15 years to get at, (laughs) and even, and I find it confusing even. So I I do understand why um, the public doesn't grasp a lot of these ideas, but um, I have to say I've been shocked the last two days through the level of, vitriol and politicking and rhetoric that has come. I, I, I kind of felt, as you had said in your opening, that Canadians have moved on, but I, I think it was just the, the amount of money that, boy, it really got people, um, a lot of people angry. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it is a lot of money, uh, and it's also the last name. I mean, it's, it's people associate him with the family, people associate him with the father, and maybe by virtue of the fact that the father's gone, he's dead, we can't really hold him accountable that a lot of that's been heaped on, on Omar, do you think? Absolutely. I mean, you just you just hit the story right on the head there. I mean, that's that's for the way the majority of the way he's been treated over the years is because of the family and and because, as you said, who the father was, and also um, there had been an early documentary made uh, which quoted the sister and the mother saying horrendous things, and right. that's when the family got called Canadians of Convenience and Canada's First Family of Care, and they're they're really. Um, were were vilified and they and they did say horrible things, um, so I think that always hung over him for sure. Um, now, as you mentioned as well, though there was a belief that Omar knew a lot of things. Uh, the people that he was fighting alongside or training alongside, the fact that uh, his father knew important Al Qaeda people, including of course Bin Laden himself. Omar, I believe, when he was ten or twelve, may have actually met. Uh, Osama bin Laden. So, the Canadian officials or CSIS officials, because a lot of this stems from those now infamous uh, interrogations, that they believe that there was intelligence to be gleaned from Omar. Absolutely, the, the Canadians did, the Americans did, and that's that's legit. Um, he, as you said, he had been um, around uh, many of his father's associates. Uh, you know, we were at war at that time. And it, it's absolutely legitimate to um, ask those questions. I think where Canada fell down, and this is what the Supreme Court has said, and why I think this settlement was inevitable when you have three Supreme Court cases that have ruled in his favor, and one in particular that was you know, really condemned uh, the government, uh, they, they found that the fact that that intelligence gathering was done in Guantanamo, when officials knew he had been abused, was without an attorney present, was a violation of his rights as a Canadian citizen. And does it all stem from that? And, and maybe that's, you know, if we're looking at the, the totality of those years and everything that Omar went through, it, it seems like a lot. But maybe to some people, the fact that those interrogations add up to a $10 million price tag, maybe there seems like a disconnect. That is that the extent of what Canada did? It, 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 to a lot of people, it is. It is a. a, a they, they would say just that. It, I, I think it's part of it. The other part is the fact that I mean the interrogation is a large part of it. The other fact is that all um, detainees were there from other countries. So the British detainees, the Australian, uh, other Western countries, their governments advocated for their return strenuously. And they got their citizens back, and they dealt with them in their own countries. So Canada just didn't do that. So, yes, it was the interrogation, but it was also the fact that he was held for 10 years. Whereas I've interviewed um, 
detainees actually from all over the world over the years. And, um, you know, the Brits were back within a year, year and a half. And so Canada really failed there and, and sort of turned a blind eye to the abuse. But, of course, it was the Americans doing it, right? <laughs> well, absolutely. I mean, this is it's often compared to the, the Arar case, which yeah. was the other large settlement. Very different cases. Um, in that case, uh, it was not the Canadians that abused him, it was the Syrians. But there was a federal inquiry that found it was due to information that the Canadians passed to the U.S., which then passed on to Syria or to Syria directly, that, that they were complicit. In this case, no. I mean, absolutely. It wasn't the, the um, Canadians who subjected him to the, what they call the frequent flyer program in, uh, in Guantanamo, where he's sleep deprived and, and other treatments. It, it was the Americans. But as a citizen, I mean, we're very lucky in Canada. As a citizen, you have, uh, the government has a responsibility to you. And the fact that he was a 15 year old and uh, Canadians pretty much went, the Canadian government pretty much went along with this treatment. Um, that is enough, the courts would find, that he deserves compensation. And just on the compensation, I mean, it is, it is a large sum of money, and, uh, um, but it will be split between him and his lawyers. Uh, and I, so I don't know exactly the breakdown. I think it's 50-50. Um, but it's still, I still agree, it's a large amount of money. All right. Now, Omar today seems like uh, a person who's trying to, to move on or trying to turn his life around. And that, that's certainly the impression we get. I know you, you've spoken to him. A big thing that, that people ask about Michelle is, I mean, has he denounced this ideology he was once brainwashed into and, and denounced that which his, his father represented? Well, we spent three days with him upon his first when he was released to do our documentary. And uh, it was it was interesting. You know, we we he's hours really talking to him. Uh, he at that time was incredibly, he was incredibly serene. He was incredibly um, quite insightful actually, which is really a credit to all those who had worked with him over the years. He had some incredible attorneys, uh, including, you know, of course, Dennis Edney and his wife, Patricia, who took him into their home. They worked with him a lot. He had good U.S. attorneys. He had psychiatrists and psychologists. So despite all the things that he that happened to him in custody in the final years, he did have some people working with him. Uh, he very much, I mean, from what he told us in those days, and I haven't interviewed him since. I mean, I've talked here and there, but I haven't done another extensive interview. Uh, he feels that his father, he, he puts pretty much the blame for where his head was at at the time uh, on what his father and those around him were telling him. And so, you know, does he speak out against ISIS and what's happening there now? Yes, absolutely. But he doesn't feel, I think he feels that he should be given a break because at 15, 14, 13, when he was over there, all the people around him had the same mentality that he was supposed to have, yeah. I think. That's not a very good way of explaining it. I mean, I don't really want to put words into his his mouth <laughs> and not, not right. promo the documentary, but I mean, it's sort of, it's sort of all there and I can't remember it verbatim. No, that's, that's but, understandable. Um, but yeah, he, I mean, we did ask him those questions and uh, he had kind of complicated answers. With regard to the rest of his family now, um, I, I believe his parole conditions for now preclude him from having contact with other family members. And, and I know there's a question of, well, does he still or will he maintain a relationship with them? Will some of the money that, that he receives go to them? And do we, do we know the answer? 
I don't know. I don't actually know the answer to the last question there, but I think um, unless it's changed, it's it's his sister that he can't have contact with, but he can have contact with the other members of his family, and they've all gone in in different directions. Uh, you know, there's most of them are in Toronto. Um, I don't know about I don't know about the money, but in terms of relationship, yes, he has. He definitely has seen them. Um, as again, as you told us in the documentary, when I posed that question, I said people are going to have a lot of concern about you being with them. And he said something to the effect of, "Listen, if I survived uh, Guantanamo, where there were um, people who were charged with terrorism, who probably were terrorists, and I survived that, um, not succumbing to their mentality." I'm not, and again, I'm paraphrasing wrong because he, he wasn't calling his family terrorists, but he was basically saying, my my family has its own opinions, and I have my opinions, and I hope I'm a good influence on them rather than them being an influence on me. So he wasn't denouncing his family, but he was saying, um, yes, I will maintain a relationship with them, which I think is, is understandable. I mean, that's your family. And... Um, so he has, he still lives out in Edmonton, not with his family, but I understand that he does see them. And they're in Ontario, right? They are, yes. Interesting. Okay, so for whatever reason, I mean, the, the federal government has kind of let this linger out there for a couple of days. I, I don't know, is it your sense that this kind of accidentally leaked? Did they deliberately leak this? Why, why haven't they addressed it directly yet? Very good question. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I have my suspicions, but I'm uh, I'm trying to find answer the same questions myself. All right. Well, more to thestar.com. Uh, Michelle, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate it, too. All right. Take care. Michelle Shepard, national security reporter, Toronto Star, author of well, her latest book called Decade of Fear, Reporting from Terrorism's Gray Zone. Uh, and her book which became a documentary uh, called Guantanamo's Child about Omar Khadr. All right, 974-8255 is our number. We're back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.